So, good evening. <clears throat> so, just testing the sound. How's the sound now? Good. Okay. So, I'd like to congratulate you for your second full day of practice. Sometimes the first day is challenging, sometimes the second day is more challenging. So, as we often say, this practice is so simple yet not easy. So I always feel a lot of respect and appreciation for the hard work that it takes to show up, to be present, to cultivate the heart, to generate kindness, to be with yourself. Not so easy. Without our distractions and our toys and whatever it is that we use to get through life, I'm always chuckled by the different comments that I sometimes hear on the first few days of a retreat. And people, often through the lens of doubt, thinking, why did I come here? You know, I could have gone to Napa Valley and got a little hotel in wine country and be sipping Chardonnay. Someone once said, you know, I'd rather be at work. Work's easier. (laughs) I I can relate to that. There's a cartoon that someone sent me. I actually saw it, Insight Meditation Society. And um, there's a, you know, those shows, So You Think You Can Dance? You know that TV show? I've never seen it, but I hear it's good. Anyhow, um, so there's a cartoon of a stage, and there's somebody meditating on the stage, and there's judges behind them, and the the title, So You Think You Can Meditate. (laughs) So maybe you can relate to that. So this evening I want to talk about some of the reasons why it's hard, why it's challenging, why it's not easy to show up, to be present, and some of the difficulties and the roadblocks that we encounter as we do this practice of metta. These are some quotes from a friend of mine who put together this book on children's perspectives on God, peace, and love. So a few words from four to eight-year-olds about love. One says, When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Love is what is in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. And this is from a slightly older... This is from a 10-year-old. I'm not rushing into love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough as it is. (laughs) So the reason I read those quotes, and there's, there's innumerable from that book and many others, is that it seems that when we come into this world, we're very connected to love, connected to its essence, to its expression, to its purity. And then over time, it seems that we get more removed. It gets more inaccessible. We get hurt, we get wounded, we get scared, we get afraid. And so the heart closes. And so that's one of the things I want to look at today. I went to uh, my best friend's wedding yesterday. Um, I snuck out of here. As some of you may have noticed, I wasn't around for some of the day. Thank you for letting me go. Uh, and, um, you know, weddings are always beautiful places to, because they're really like fiestas of metta. 
fiestas of love and celebration. And um, it was an interesting juxtaposition coming from a meta retreat to uh, a wedding, which is you know which is a beautiful expression of love, and and and, and its essence, particularly with my friends, it what it had meta at its root, which was this desire to express unconditional love, even though they knew. And one of the vows was, I let go of the myth of <laughs> happy ever after. Right? I let go of the myth of this idea; it's all going to be easy, and it's actually work. So whether it's in relationship or in a retreat, it's work. And that's why we're here. We, we're here to look at the obstacles. Rumi said, your task is not to seek love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. And maybe you didn't build them. Maybe they just formed through conditions. So I'm curious, how many of you have been in blissful, radiant love all day today? I'm not seeing too many hands. I'm seeing a couple of hands. Okay, good. All's good either way. But no, we often, what happens is, you know, there's a purification practice, as we've mentioned. And so, even though often we come with a lot of expectations, oh, I'm going to go on this love retreat, and people imagine you sailing on these clouds of peace and radiant happiness, and no, it's, it's a work retreat. So, and in a way, there's, there's two particular uh, pieces of work or challenges. One, the cultivation of love and looking at the obstacles, but also just the meditation uh, practice in itself, the, 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 the development and balance of effort, of energy, of intention. Right? And so with any meditation practice, it takes a certain refinement. And again, I want to speak to some of that today. And one of the things to remember that we often so easily forget when we're encountering our struggles and our difficulties, we often personalize the universal. We think, oh, this is, I'm struggling with this, I'm the only one, I'm the only one who's coming up against fear, or my heart being closed, or resistance, or a lot of hatred, or anguish, or hurts from the past. No, it's, these are universal conditions. And so just to watch the mind thinking that somehow you're doing it wrong, but you're not in this abundant, boundless condition. You know, maybe we touch that, but we, we want, want to be just in, in the same way with mindfulness practice, we want to be as interested where we go when we're not present as when we're present. We want to be as interested as the obstacles as love itself. So I know, and from my own experience and, and hearing from people, that often we come on a retreat like this, and the first, one of the first things we experience is um, shock, because we have to slow down, we have to be with ourselves, we have to fear, feel our weariness or all the unfelt emotions. Retreats are like a clearinghouse, that all the things that have been left unprocessed, unfelt, unspoken, they come up to us, they come through the mind and the heart. And sometimes we feel a little disappointment, because we had such high hopes and expectations for the retreat and ourselves and the practice, and then we hit a wall of tiredness and sluggishness. We can barely stay awake and we're just doing the, the wailing wall practice. You know, or we just feel a lot of hatred, like this sucks. I don't want to be here. I don't do this work. I don't want to get up at 5.30 in the morning. I don't want to meditate till 10 o'clock at night. I want to relax and it's a beautiful sunny day and I want to hang out with the turkeys. And 
So sometimes that triggers doubt. We go through, oh no, what am I doing here? I can't do this. Everybody else looks so beautiful and I'm just this slouch who's just drinking tea all the time and hanging out in my room and or just, you know, I just can't be bothered. I'm just going to give it up. You know, I'm just going to take a nap or several naps. Or it triggers grasping. I want something else to be happening. I'm going to get my meta books out and read those instead or my whatever else toys I brought, technology toys. So you see it's very easy to go through these different hindrances and they trigger each other. Sometimes they all come at once. We call that a multiple hindrance attack. And then we feel overwhelmed when we find ourselves walking to the local deli in Woodacre and in search of cappuccino. <laughs> but like with everything here and in our experience, the invitation is to, can, is, is to see if you can meet all of that. No matter where you are, who you are, what's happening, can I meet this with a kind attention? Whether I'm restless and I can barely sit in my own skin, whether I'm feeling sad and, and bereft of love, whether I'm feeling um, just wanting to get the hell out of here, can we meet that with kindness? Can we meet that with a, with a warm attention? Oh, it's like this. Right? And so again, these, the, the fusion of mindfulness and matter always working together. Can we see and hold and acknowledge the conditions and say, oh, oh this is suffering. As Sylvia Borstein, who's I've taught some meta retreats with her here, she'll often say, when she's going through one of these hindrances, she'll say, oh, honey, you're startled. Oh, and I love you. It's okay. Start again. Right? So can we recognize when we're agitated and out of balance, out of whack, and, and rather than judge that as a problem, say, oh, look at that, that's suffering. It allows the heart to come forward. And so whenever we meet these challenges, hindrances, obstacles, whatever we call them, with that presence, they're no longer a problem. We might not like them, we might prefer something else to be happening, but they're held within the container of loving awareness. And, that, and so in that, from that perspective, it doesn't matter actually what's happening. Whether you're having darshan with the turkeys, or oneness with everybody, or just f- bored and frantic. Meeting that with loving presence. So some of you talked in the groups today um, about uh, one of the more common hindrances that happens on the first days of retreat, which is sloth. Anybody feel like a sloth hanging from a tree, just kind of moving, you know, one millimeter per second, per hour, you know, feeling heavy and dull, and the phrases are just thick, and what phrases, we're doing something here, and... Um, and it gets really soupy in there. And, I, I, it's, and then that sometimes the phrases get pretty comical because you, you start saying things to yourself and then they kind of sound a little loopy-loo. So I've, um, some of the phrases that I remembered saying to myself and hearing other people saying, one of my favorites was, may I have contempt? <laughs> may you be wealthy and wrong? May I be fretful in hell? I don't know where that one came from, but may you eat peas? May you be weepy and hippy? And forceful. So maybe you have your own. But you know, it's, so it's a, it, when the phrases start doing weird things, constructing, <laughs> mixing, you know you're in a little sloth, sleepy, dull land. So wake yourself up, open your eyes, take some breaths, do some standing practice. 
So a few principles around the metta practice that I wanted to emphasize that, that both address the, the, the hindrances and the obstacles, but also general things that come up in the practice and it supplies with the, the hindrance of sleepiness is to really give yourselves permission to be creative. I love that about the, the, the metta practice. It's a creative practice. You make it your own, as we've been saying with the phrases. Use visualizations, and we all visualize in different ways. Some of us are more visual than others. But we make it our own. We be creative. We creative with the order of the different people that we're wishing metaphor. Um, and one of the instructions I loved from, that I received from Sharon when I was doing a lot of practice with her at IMS, um, where she said, do metta in the, in the, in the easiest way possible. And that was instruction that she'd received from her teachers. Do metta in the easiest way possible. I said, what do you mean the easiest way possible? That sounds like cheating. It's supposed to be hard and you know, you've got to strive and struggle. And, and, but the, the, the understanding is we're, we're to cultivate metta in, in whatever way most supports it. What, what, what the, the conditions that are most supportive. And so for me, that was doing a lot of my practice outside because for me, being feeling the... the the containment and the love of nature of coming from the natural world was one thing that was really supportive. But to listen to yourself, what, to yourself what allows, what, what place, what situation, what way of being uh, is most supportive. And that will be different for each of us. So today, uh, one person talked about having done this retreat last year and been practicing metta every day through to this year. His uh, way of... Um, making it his own, was he would sing the phrases. And I know many people, the phrases come as a melody. I won't show you my melody. Well, I might later, but that'd be optional in the, in the later set. Um, but for some people, singing is a way of really allowing some connection and some, some heartfulness. Another person in the group today said, um, the, during the benefactor phase, um, uh, the benefactor was the turkeys. He was hanging out with a couple of turkeys. And that was what most opened his heart, what was the most easy to love in that moment. So the turkeys became benefactors, and I'm sure they've been benefactors for many people. Um, so to, to see what it is that, that, that kindles your heart, you know, to, to fan the embers of the heart. So for me, another thing I do when I'm doing my practice here, and just generally really, is um, there's a lot of birds' nests around right now, as you may have known. Uh, there's swallows nesting uh, near the interview rooms, and there's sparrows nesting above in the meta, rafters. And uh, if you can, if you see that, just take a moment to take those little darling, shaky little ones in and the heart just blooms. How can we not respond to love when we're seeing that kind of vulnerability and tenderness? I just came back from camping and kayaking up in the lake, in lakes in, uh, near Lake Tahoe. And I was camping on this lake and there was full of... Um, uh, mother ducks with a brood of ducklings, some as much as 15, 16 ducklings swimming around after mom, some of them climbing on her back as they were swimming. And just, you know, again, the heart. And what I love about these, these, these moments, especially in nature, is it speaks to how natural and innate this quality is, right? We see a little fawn bouncing in the woods after mama with the little white spots on her coat, and the heart just radiates. It's, there's a tenderness. It's, oh, may you be safe, and I love you, and be protected. Right? This is not alien and foreign to us, even though we might be struggling. And one of the things that's interesting about intensive meta retreats that I've noticed in myself is that you know, maybe I 
do metta, I don't know, maybe once a week or sometimes more than that, and it feel, feels very accessible. And then I come to a metta retreat, and sometimes it takes days t- to access the quality. And some of you, some, and you see some nodding heads. And I don't, I'm not quite, never quite understood what that phenomena is, but um, to have patience with that and to trust the, the heartfulness that's within you. So another thing about working with sloth and when the energy is low is to really be uh, uh, creative with the visualization, to really, really have, maintain a firm sense of the person in your mind's eye, in your heart, to remember, as uh, Anushka was instructing this afternoon, to reflect on the positive qualities. And sometimes I will call to mind people who inspire me. I'll call to mind the Dalai Lama or Mother Therese or people who I'm personally connected to who bring a sense of vitality. So different ways to work with these obstacles. And to remember also one of the things that can put us to sleep is to thinking that we're in some kind of competition to see how many metaphrases we can churn out. So we feel like we're a metafactory. And the more I squeeze in, the more it's going to work. There's a power with saying the phrases regardless of the feeling, but it's also from my own personal reference point is can I, am I saying the words in a, in a way that feels genuine? So there may be no feeling whatsoever, but can I say, can I really get behind, yes, I want you to be well, yes, I wish to be happy. So when I was doing a meta retreat some years ago here, I did it for a month, and one of the things, and again, I, I encountered this, this period of, of, of initial days of feeling very disconnected from the, the sense of meta. And, and so at some point I reflected to myself, well, wait a minute, even though this is inaccessible, I know in my, in my heart of hearts that this is innate to my, innate to my being, the sense of heartfulness and kindness. And so what I would do, I'd do a practice of deep listening and let the phrases come from a deep place in the heart very slowly and very meaningfully. Rather than thinking, I'm adding this stuff, I'm pulling it from outside and adding it to myself. It's really coming from within. I'm nurturing these seeds, these embers from within. So other obstacles that come up that you may have noticed. So perhaps the most common one, I think, is the, the, what's known as the far enemy, the, the, the strongest obstacle to matter, which is the the realm of hatred, aversion, fear, anger, resistance. And often this is very apparent when we start doing it to ourselves. We encounter, sometimes it's like hitting a brick wall or an iceberg. I know for me it was a sense of this big iceberg in the center of my chest. And yet the Buddha said, you know, the, the... there's nobody worthy of, of love than our own selves. And it's often a paradox to us. Well, what does he mean by that? So many people afflicted by the sense of lack of worth, lack of love, lack of self-kindness, harshness, cruelty. Walt Whitman put it this way. He said, as to me, I know of nothing but miracles. As to me, I know of nothing but miracles. This is someone who is abiding with a sense of very strong self-regard, self-metta. Oscar Wilde put it this way, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. 
to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. Of course, as you know, love affairs are pretty, can be tempestuous and stormy, so they have their ups and their downs, not just a smooth road. So that's why we practice. So to reflect on the ways that your heart might be close to yourself. And for some people, this is, comes as a surprise. You know, I, there's a sense of being able to feel a lot of warmth and affection for people and care, and then when it's turned inward, there's a, there's a block. So there's sometimes there's conditioning around it being not okay to do that, that it's somehow self-indulgent, um, that, it's, that it's narcissistic. But to see the ways, that, and it's really important to understand how your heart might be closed, because unless we understand what's going on, there's no chance of transformation. So is, it, is there a sense of rejection or coldness or judgment or some deep sense of regret about past actions or guilt or remorse in different ways or just, or just the, the way our heart's been hurt by others and it shuts down, hardens, closes. Or the way our heart closes down out of fear, uh, f- out of being hurt by others, and so that, that, that capacity to, to feel that sense of warmth and kindness to others is also shut down. When we shut down the heart, everything shuts down, both joy, appreciation, gratitude, kindness, as well as the pain. So one of the ways the Buddha talked about how we harm ourselves is with the second arrow, the second dart. So we have an experience like people talked about having physical pain today. Anybody got some physical pain? Anybody got a body? Yeah, they'll, you'll have some pain and discomfort at some point, sit long enough. And often, rather than feel compassion or kindness or tenderness, it's like, oh, God, not that again. Oh, that injury. Oh, I hate that. Oh, no, not my knee pain. I really wanted to meditate on the floor. And we start hating and chastising and judging and berating our body as if it's doing something wrong for experiencing pain and discomfort. Or we judge ourselves for emotions. We know maybe we're feeling a lot of grief and loss. Many people I know are here with some different, with, with uh, some strong feelings of loss or uh, grief. And often the mind comes in and says, oh, really, you're still feeling that? You should be over that by now. Or maybe you've been told things like that. And that was so long ago, you should be done with that grieving. And so that just slams on the the walls, and, uh, and we shut down. There was a woman I worked with some years ago here, and she had uh, been sexually abused as a child when she was about five, and uh, she'd always blamed herself uh, for the abuse, as many do, and uh, so added many, many layers of shame and guilt on top of already a horrific uh, incident. And so through the practice, she began to unpeel those layers and seeing, seeing that she wasn't at fault and taking off at least the first layer um, or the second layer of suffering. So she'd actually be with the experience and, and with that being, she could open her heart to compassion. I'd say the thing I most notice on these retreats, and I often do a little um, uh, talk at some point, I and mean, I may do on this retreat, 
um, that most hampers the practice is people's judgments and uh, self-criticism and the inner critic berating ourselves for all kinds of different things. So, does that sound familiar? People notice a little voice going, oh, your matter's not very good, your practice isn't good, and you're not, you're not smart enough, and you're not cute enough, and you're not whatever enough, right? The mantra, the trance of unworthiness, as Tara Brock calls it. And of course, these are also, and then we judge ourselves for judging, or we judge ourselves for judging others, or we judge ourselves for judging for judging. And it becomes this never-ending trap. But those judgments are usually you know, repetitions of, of implanted messages from the past, which are also suffering. And I worked with a student, and um, one of the things she heard as a child, she, was, she had incredible uh, physical uh, challenges uh, growing up, I think, with polio and various other things. And her family went through a lot of stress around her health. And at some point, her mother said to her, it would have been better if you died. It was caused so much distress to the family. And you can imagine how that gets internalized. And so many of these judgments come from similar conditioning. And yet the psyche is amazingly resilient, amazingly uh, resourceful in dealing with that. I want to read a story. This is from one of Jack's books about uh, D.S. Bennett. Um, a story about compassion blooming in suffering. And she writes, My mother was always assure, assured me that as a child, as naughty as I was, um, she said, if I were you, she'd say, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating my words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I'd just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. She answered, how could anybody ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under the covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I'd carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little pieces of, little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So maybe you've noticed the critic slamming you meta. Yeah, you don't really believe that. You're not really that kind. You're not really that loving. I know what you're like in real life. I know what you're like when you're with this person. So the meta's always, the critic's always inclining to the the unwholesome. And the meta's inclining us to the positive, to the wholesome, to the skillful. There's a New Yorker cartoon and frames it quite well. There's a, a woman talking to her husband who's at his study and she's saying, uh, it was only one Nobel Prize you won, dear, wasn't it? <laughs> and there's a, a cartoon that I also... It's a great example of the critic and our negative slanting mind. So this is uh, from Rhymes with Orange, and it's called Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. 
which is really what the critic is. A recipe for feeling terrible. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. She's saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. And I add, especially with people who share your last name. (laughs) Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And she's getting compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me, don't patronize me. (laughs) And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. As Wavy Gravy said, if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny. So we need to have a bit of a sense of humor with our critic. Humor is one of the, one of the ways that we can disengage. We want to be able to disengage from those harsh, bitter, mean, caustic attacks. So it's, I think it's important, both with mindfulness practice and meta practice, to, to, to know when our critic's operating. And our critic very quickly becomes a Buddhist critic, a mindfulness critic, a meditation critic, a metacritic. And you find yourself walking and you're judging yourself for how you're walking, too slow, too fast, too something, right? Or how you're eating, becomes an eating critic, right? So if, we, if we're not paying attention to this, it really undermines ourselves, our well-being, our practice. So to know, to, make, to, to really discern the difference between when we're thinking we might have a Dharma coach on our, on our side that's like, you know, you know, a little more meta, a little more phrases, that's good, you know, go back to the breath, you know. And it's pretty harmless, versus, God, that meditation was so pathetic. That was so lame, that was so whatever it was. And just to, so to see, oh, judging, judging, and then to replace the judgment with a metaphrase, oh, and may I be happy. But that meditation was so sloppy, thank you, may I be peaceful. And your life's just so untogether, thank you, may I be well. And your body, look at it, and may I be healthy. And so you just start neutralizing those very powerful statements. And the, 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 the combination of discernment, mindfulness, metta is a wonderful antidote to the critic. Many other ways to do that. So I'm remembering a story of um, working with a, a woman uh, on the East Coast and she's caught in this trap of um, self-judgment and, and that what I sense was the way it crystallizes, she experienced this knot in her heart, this like tight, it was like she was a farmer and she said it was like a walnut in there and it's not uncommon for us to feel a sense of frozenness or hardness or contraction because of the the pain or the, the distress that's, that we're carrying. And so rather than just beating herself up more, um, there was, we invited her to you know, just hold that with some tenderness. And so she, um, she began to cry and there was a lot of tears during that retreat. And so we checked in later and she said that um, the tears and the, caused the melting of the hardness to crack open and the out of the walnut became, uh, grew a little sprout, a little, like a little sapling, you know, with that openness, with that tenderness. And so that's possible when we, we learn to meet these places in us that are hard, that are closed, that often have been closed for decades. You know, I remember being on a retreat and, and in, encountering a lot of uh, real intense uh, distress 
And it's stuff I hadn't, uh, memories I hadn't been aware of for decades. And so, but the psyche in the body holds this stuff, as you know. And so when we start opening the heart, these, these are some of the layers that we were invited to meet. This is a poem from wonderful poet Marie Howe. And the, the, she's talking about this same process in, in the context of the mess of daily life. Anybody's life not messy? Most lives I know are complicated and messy in a beautiful way. So she's, it's this a poem written to her brother who died at 28 of AIDS. She writes, Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there and the drainer won't work, the drainer won't work but smells dangerous and the crusty dishes have piled up in the sink waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep, headstrong blue. The sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along the wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again. And again later when buying a hairbrush, this is it, parking, slamming the door shut in the cold, what you call that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call. We want more of it and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face and unbuttoned coat, that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. So, sometimes our heart opens like that. You know, we, I think of Meta as tending a garden. We're, we're cultivating the garden of kindness. And we're planting these seeds. And there's weeds, and it's muddy, and it's messy, and it's cold and windy. And at some point, a little sprout emerges, a little sprout of forgiveness. We forgive ourselves for something we did, or a little softening to our body, or a little opening to our loneliness or our isolation. Of course, the, the, the hatred isn't oh, it just turned inward, it's also turned outward. We, we may be encountering some of the ways that we've hardened and hurt others with our words, with our actions. Yeah. And then there's so much of the, the, the violence and the hatred and the racism and the oppression in the world comes from these very seeds in our own mind that, that we're looking at, where we harden, where we contract. You know, maybe we're doing loving kindness, which, you know, during the day, and then we go outside and there's, we're sitting outside on the bench and there's a mosquito. And when we're, we're just touching that really sweet spot of loving all beings, and then there's me, and we want to kill it. Right? That's hatred right there. That's the opposite of metta. Hopefully with mindfulness, there's a little moment between the feeling, desire to kill it, and actually acting on it. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Did hatred ever, any, ever make anybody feel happy? And so just to look and see, you know, this, it's interesting, 
I often notice when I work with students and clients that there's a reluctance to look at this experience of hatred. But as a practitioner, it's essential that we look at everything, particularly these things that really obscure the heart. So when hatred arises, welcome it. Oh, hatred, great, I'm hating whatever it is. I'm just remembering some political speech I just listened to the other day on the radio. Oh, hatred, I hate that person. I, okay, feel that, feel, how, feel the contractedness, feel the separateness, feel the pain of that, feel the polarization. Hatred never ceases with hatred, as the Buddha said. Only by love alone does hatred cease. Well, what does that mean, this moment when I'm gripped by hatred, this person who violated me or who abused me? Okay, what is it like to feel that? And can I feel the suffering of that and, open to, and, and allow some compassion to move with that? This is from Martin Luther King. He's, he wrote, When I speak of love, the whole idea is misunderstood. And he's referring to love as agape. Agape is creative, understanding, redemptive goodwill for all. Theologians would say that this is the love of divine, of the divine operating in the human heart. When one rises to love on this level, one loves every man, every person. He rises to the point of loving the person who does the evil deed, but not the deed that the person does. And you can see there's a tremendous strength in that, there's tremendous courage in that, to face hatred, to face the evil in the world, the suffering in the world. So and the, another main stream of experiences that we encounter is uh, what's referred to as the near enemy of metta, which is love that's infused with desire, with attachment, with agenda, with conditions. Anybody notice that? Anybody any experience of that? Perhaps. You know, so the Buddha is pointing to this quality of metta as being boundless, as being radiant and equal to all, like the rain coming down. Right? But that experience is actually quite rare. We, we, we experience love in different ways, but to have that boundlessness is challenging. So, and, and this is and so often in, in, when we do the through the, all the phrases, all the stages, the last stage is, of course, wishing metta for all beings, for all life to be happy. And often, inevitably, the question comes, well, if, all, if we're wishing all life to be happy, that's impossible, because half of life is eating the other half to be happy. So it doesn't make sense. What's up with that? And this woman asked that question when I was teaching on the East Coast. She said, I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense, and I'm frustrated. And she was taking a hike one morning, and uh, she was walking in the woods, in the forest, and she noticed these fluttering of um, uh, feathers coming down from a tree. And she looked up and there was a hawk eating a chickadee, a little, you know, little sparrow-like bird. And she got it. Oh yeah, I want, my heart wants both birds to be happy. And one needs to eat the other to survive. And, they, and, and still the heart wants both to be happy. The paradox can be held in the heart, but not the mind. There's a cartoon, uh, I think it's from the New Yorker, and there's a, uh, a woman, a uh, mom, uh, sitting on the bed with her son, and the son's asked her some question like, Mom, do you, do you, will you love me for whatever I do, or something like that? And the mom says, Oh, honey, no, my love for you has tons of conditions. LAUGHTER 
And that's, you know, mostly true. Our love has conditions. We love, you know, if we're in a romantic relationship, there's certain expectations about loving in return or fidelity or various agreements. Um, so and so it's, it's a very you know, common experience for a, a love to have some kind of strings attached to it. And the matter is, I want everything for you and nothing from you, in, in its essence. Or it's, it's often we experience love as trade. I will do this for you, I'll love you in this way if I get something in return. My dry cleaners has a, a, a sticker on the door with a big heart, big red heart, and it says, we love our customers. And I think, will they still love me if I go to the other dry cleaners down the road? <laughs> I don't think so. Or maybe, who knows? Maybe the Bodhisattva's in there. <laughs> or I was in there going to, driving to a retreat, and it was Valentine's Day. We, I teach this meta retreat every year on the East Coast on Valentine's Day, which is always a fun time to teach it. And I was going in a camp to the, to the center, and there was an ad on all these different Valentine's ads for flowers and chocolates, and this one ad came on, um, you know, if you really love your partner, you'll give them a gift certificate for plastic surgery. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, that's a little risky to give on Valentine's Day. <laughs> I don't think that's quite in the unconditional spirit. So in our practice, in our day-to-day practice, in the meta, it, it's, it's meta with an edge. So we're wishing meta for somebody, maybe well now, maybe peaceful now. You know, there's some, I, I, I'll med- wish meta for you if you actually get better, if you fix yourself, if you stop doing all those horrible things, I'll love you, right? So we see all the different ways we, we shade our meta with some kind of conditions. Or we, we get impatient with the people we're sending meta for. I, I, I spent the whole week working on you and look at you, you haven't changed. <laughs> or we're we doing meta for ourselves and there's a desire to, rather than accepting ourselves and wishing love for ourselves unconditionally, there's the desire for ourselves to be different. Right? We start sort of scheming, oh, I wish I was like this or like that. Right? As Lily Tomlin wrote once um, in one of her f- funny quirks, she said, uh, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. So, you know, we start running through the list of the things we're not and what we could be. And so again, none of these hindrances are wrong or a problem when they're seen in awareness. When we see that our love has an edge, when we see that our love has conditions, when we see this desire or attachment infused in our, you know, and of course, you know, we get to see our attachments all the time. Just be in relationship with anybody and attachment will arise. Healthy ways and unhealthy ways. And so we get to hold that in awareness and see when the, um, uh, when the attachment binds, right? So uh, the analogy is like, um, this is, say this is a flower. I wish I had a flower. I can't reach, it doesn't matter. This is a flower. And then this is, this is our love with, 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 with attachment, right? With binds, right? So when the flower is no longer free to be. And so when we're talking about freeing ourselves from clinging and attachment and allowing the, our matter to be unconditional, we're just releasing the bind and the flower can be bloom as it needs to bloom. So lastly, um, uh, a common doubt, a common hindrance arises is doubt. 
is self-doubt. I can't do this. This is, this is hopeless. I've been trying for years. I'm the only one. I'll never be able to do it. Oh, these people don't know what they're talking about. I don't know. They didn't look very metaphorical to me. Uh, I know what the Buddha was talking about. And the Buddha actually had a lot of doubt. The Buddha, on his night of his enlightenment and through, through different teachings in the text for the many years for, in his lifetime, the, 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 the personification of doubt would come as Mara, this sort of this figure of, of unconsciousness and darkness and ignorance. And um, again, we work with that in our practice, to, we recognize it. Oh, to see, to see the power of our belief systems. Oh, I can't do this. Notice what happens when you believe that. Versus, hmm, I'll be open. I'll see it as a possibility. And the Buddha said, I, if, if this wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this. Right? And this is practice being, being done by millions of people. So there's a story that Sharon tells of a friend of hers who's been doing meta for about five years. And he says, you know, the practice, I don't think it's working. And it's really, I still struggle, there's hindrances, I get distracted, and I don't really feel much when I'm doing the meta practice. And she said, well, what else is happening in your life? She said, well, you know, my kids said, you know, they, they, they sort of find me to be kinder and a little more patient. My wife definitely sees a big change and she's I'm much easier to be with. And people at work saying, I'm, you know, I'm easy to get along with and, you know, much more appreciative. And, and, but is that enough? <laughs> so we often look to our practice and think, oh, there's still thoughts coming, there's still this. And, but off, the proof of the pudding is when we, when we step off the cushion and we practice. We meditate on the cushion and then we practice in our lives. Right? And so often to be mindful of not evaluating your practice prematurely. Right? You have no idea what's happening in the middle of, of a practice period. Right? And so the, the power of the practice is to keep showing up, getting to the cushion, saying the phrases, extending the heart, forgiving, remembering, forgetting, remembering, allowing, loving. And little by little the, 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 drops, in, the drops in the bucket fill in a beautiful way. And I see that in myself. I've been doing this practice off and on for 30 years and I, I see how my heart is transformed and I have so much gratitude for, for having been given access to these teachings and to see uh, the different ways. I mean, even just like I was walking, I went to print out my talk and I always have trouble printing out my talk here pretty much every single time. I'm running around trying to find somebody and the computer doesn't work and my thumb drive just doesn't work because I put it in the washing machine. And, you know, and I'm trying to, you know, be this, you know, bastion of peace and I'm getting all frazzled. And so I was, I walked out from the teacher room where we have a, a printer and it wasn't working. And I, and, and, and the, the meta seed sprouted. It's like, oh, this is suffering. Oh, may you be at ease in this. And just that, right? Didn't, didn't, didn't solve the problem of the computer, <laughs> but it, it made it easier to be within the moment, right? And so that's why we practice for these sprouts to keep arising. So one woman who left a retreat, uh, a meta retreat, uh, she'd been working on sending meta to her, her difficult person was this neighbor in her street who was uh, sort of like the bane of the neighborhood, is very aggressive and grumpy and sour and leaves people grumpy messages and notes on their cars. And she was walking back from the retreat, parked a car, walking up to her apartment, and um, she saw the neighbor in the garden and she says, first initial contraction, then she remembered, okay, maybe well, maybe happy. And she walked up to him, and he came down to the bottom of the garden to meet her. 
and she was um, surprised. And he said, as, as, and she said hello, and, and he said, you know, I'm really sorry for being such a difficult person. And he wept. And she's like, wow, this practice works. <laughs> Pretty good. So who knows? You know, who knows what happened then and why that moment? But I like to, to just remain in, you don't know mind, right? You know, there's, there's done studies have done of, the, of how this affects people remotely. But we're not doing that. We're really doing this to transform our own heart. And as we transform our own heart, we transform our relationships and we transform the world. So I want to close with a little story. Um, I think I'll close with this um, story, not an unfamiliar story to many of you, called Silent Night, um, about the story during the, sec- the First World War um, in 1914 at Christmas and the battlefield in Flanders, where there was tremendous, tremendous amount of suffering. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people's, people died uh, in the trenches. And uh, as the German, British, and French troops were facing each other, were settling in for the night, a young German soldier began to sing Silent Night, Holy Night. Others joined in. When they'd finished, the British and the French responded with other Christmas carols. Eventually, the men from both sides left their trenches and met in the middle. They shook hands, exchanged gifts, and shared pictures of their families. Informal soccer games began in what had been no man's land, and a joint service was held to bury the dead of both sides. The generals, of course, were not pleased with events. Men who have come to know each other's names and seen each other's families are much less likely to want to kill each other. War seems to require a nameless, faceless enemy. So following the magical night, the men on both sides spent a few days simply firing aimlessly into the sky. Then the war was back in earnest and continued for three more bloody years. Yet the story of that Christmas Eve lingers, a night when the angels really did sing peace on earth. So let's sit together for a few moments. Remembering that matter is innate to your heart, capacity to love. May all beings live with a loving heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.